This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 233rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and this episode is presented by the HBO drama Westworld. Time calls it one of the biggest shows on earth. For your Emmy consideration, 21 nominations, including Outstanding Drama Series. My guest today is a bona fide TV legend, an actor best known for his portrayal of the bartender Sam Malone on NBC's Cheers from 1982 through 1993, which brought him 11 of his 16 Emmy nominations and both of his Emmy wins, and whose other credits include Becker, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Damages, Bored to Death, CSI, Fargo, and, most recently, another Peacock Network comedy series, the massively acclaimed The Good Place, for which he won the Best Actor in a Comedy Series Critics' Choice Award earlier this year and is now nominated for the Best Actor in a Comedy Series Emmy, the great Ted Danson. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Pamela McClintock, a senior film writer here and our resident box office expert, to dissect how American moviegoers have behaved over the last few months as we enter the dog days of summer. Pam, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Good to be here. Well, I want to begin with the movie that we've been talking about these last two weeks, and that is Mission Impossible Fallout. Paramount is the distributor of it, and they have really had an interesting year, thanks to unexpected, in some ways, films. There was A Quiet Place early on, then Book Club, and now Mission Impossible Fallout, which has been the number one movie for two weekends in a row. And the stat that I love having come across is that Tom Cruise has now been atop the box office 32 years apart. Mission Impossible Fallout comes 32 years after Top Gun was number one. I don't know if any other movie star can claim something like that, but I guess the question is, is Mission Impossible Fallout success about the Mission Impossible franchise or about Paramount's marketing of this film or Tom Cruise or something else? Well, it's probably a combination of all those things, but I think the main thing people are talking about is the fact that Tom Cruise does his own stunts. And so in a world of sort of CGI and special effects, you see someone actually doing the action. Mm -hmm. So I think that seems to be really resonating with people. And as you know, it's got great reviews and mm -hmm. has an A cinema score. It's the first one in the series to get a straight A versus an A minus or a B. And commercially, how is it comparing to the prior installments? It's doing very well. Yeah. I mean, it could come out, it could be the number one film, but that's not adjusted for inflation, mm -hmm. of course, because mm -hmm. the franchise is so old that if you go back and Adjust for inflation, the first movie's probably made more. I think it was 96 or something. It's yeah, amazing how long. it's been a long time. Yeah. Well, let's talk about another movie that has reached a milestone this past week, and that is Black Panther, which we've been talking about, I think, since January or something. Mm -hmm. This is, of course, from Disney and Marvel. It's sort of a groundbreaking comic book adaptation, and now it has reached $700 million domestically. Talk about how it got there and what that 
signals in terms of just how you know how this movie stands compared to other Marvel movies, and maybe even in terms of the awards conversation, which it certainly hopes to be a part of. Right. I mean, I think it's you know it's a big achievement in the sense that only two other films in history have ever crossed seven hundred million in North America, which. The first, I think the top now is Star Wars Force Awakens, and then you have Avatar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a big deal. And again, if you adjust for inflation, mm-hmm. that's all out the window. Right. But, you know, Black Panther, I mean, it's remarkable. It's been in theaters for nearly six months. And granted, it's the theater count has gone way down. Right. In the last few weeks, Disney, I think, on one weekend, up the theater count from like 25 to 150. Mm-hmm. And so managed to get here without doing an official re-release. And it's sort of funny because A Wrinkle in Time... I was just going to ask you, yeah. You know, that movie sadly didn't work and, you know, lost money for Disney. But they wanted to get that movie over $100 and to do it, they paired it with Incredibles Mm -hmm. 2 at drive-in theaters and split the grosses. But what's sort of funny is... Well, I don't know if it's funny, but (laughs) they couldn't do that in this instance with Black Panther and Christopher Robin because they're such different movies. Right. <laughs> You're going to so, different audience. Because I that. thought they would maybe pair them because that would have easily you know, pushed it over 700 million. So when they do these little tactics to cross a movie over a milestone figure, who are they doing that for? I mean, I don't, you know, I would actually argue in this case, I mean, I guess it was a tactic. Wrinkle in Time was definitely a tactic, mm-hmm. which I think Ava DuVernay, the director, really wanted to be able to say that her film grossed 100 million. So I think in many cases, it's the filmmaker. I think in the case of Black Panther, it's just one of many victories. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, let me turn the microphone around and say to you, like, do you think something like that helps with awards? I think it's a good talking point to have when you have to campaign, especially for a movie that's not conventional awards type fair right, right but you know if it had stopped at 698 i don't know if anyone would have held it against them <laughs> right. but let's talk also now about some smaller movies because obviously whether it's mission impossible or wrinkle in time or black panther these are monster monster sized movies but there's some smaller movies that have really been a part of the awards conversation from this first half of the year maybe just beyond the first half and i wonder how you would say they have performed and those include everything from A24's Hereditary and Eighth Grade to Annapurna's Sorry to Bother You to Bleecker Street's Leave No Trace to Lionsgate Summit's Blind Spotting. Are these generally popping because they're well-reviewed quality films as counter-programming to the bigger stuff in the summer? Or would you group them all as doing well or how have they performed? I mean, I wouldn't group all of them as doing great. Mm-hmm. Hereditary opened wide from the get-go, so that was never like your normal limited release. Mm-hmm. I think it's made about forty-four million. You know, that's a great number, but I, you know, a part of me thinks they may have wanted to do more since it's a more commercial horror movie. Mm-hmm. Blind spotting, you know, has really just begun its run. Certainly, sorry to bother you is doing very well. But the biggest story in the specialty space are the documentaries. Well, so let's tee that up for you here this way. We have several that are getting awards buzz and just doing big numbers, and I'm going to ask you to talk more specifically about them. Won't You Be My Neighbor for Focus Features, RBG for Magnolia, and Three Identical Strangers for Neon. And then there are, you know, again, you, you can't get too general because there are some that I think from, from your reporting have sort of underperformed, including Whitney 
Pope Francis, a man of his word, and Dinesh D'Souza's Death of a Nation. That one argues that there are parallels between Abraham Lincoln and Donald Trump. So I would argue that that one is not succeeding because Dinesh D'Souza is a moron. But the others, I wonder if you can just talk about some of these success stories. I mean, these are big successes, Won't You Be My Neighbor and some of the others. You know, I don't think I've, I mean, except for maybe the summer when, I forget if Fahrenheit 9-11 was a summer release, but certainly March of the Penguins was Mm -hmm. a huge summer film when it opened. But, you know, this is a crazy stat. This summer, if you look at specialty releases, those movies that start out in you know, a few theaters and then expand outwards. Won't You Be My Neighbor is actually the top grossing specialty release of the summer so far. And that's something you really never see. For a doc, yeah. And it's made 21 million and RBG did great business and Three Identical Strangers entered the marketplace, you know, way after those films first opened and is just doing remarkable Mm -hmm. business considering it doesn't have a big name like Fred Rogers or... Justice Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's really, it's a fascinating phenomenon. And the stat about Won't You Be My Neighbor that is really impressive, I think, and puts things into context is that I think it has blown away Amy, the Amy Winehouse doc, to become the highest grossing bio doc or biopic in history, right? Right. I like to call it, I coined that bio doc. Bio doc, that's good. I kind of love that. Yeah, that is. Yeah, it's, it's really, really incredible. And you know, I wonder if Focus had any idea it would do this sort of business or what this means for the movie's award, you know, awards run. Yeah, I think just to that end, it's interesting. The process people should know is that the documentary branch of the Academy solely picks the nominees. Right. And then the full Academy picks the winner. So this is one of these situations, probably like Amy, where if you get nominated, if you can get through the branch, which is these guys are tough, then it becomes of the five nominees, which is the most sort of widely appealing. And so a movie about lovely Fred Rogers at a time when we're living through the Trump age, I think will probably do very well with the full Academy. But the cynical kind of doc branch itself might prefer something a little harder hitting or edgy. So we'll see what happens there. But let's talk about another kind of thing, anticipating the coming award season, and that is how Netflix is scrambling to find a way to offer its awards, hopefuls, more of a theatrical release than they've been able to provide in the past. The lack of that is something that I know upset Carrie Fukunaga with Beasts of a No Nation, which was Netflix's first sort of narrative awards contender a few years ago. And having a theatrical release is very important to people like Alfonso Cuaron for Roma and Paul Greengrass for 22nd of July, movies that are coming from Netflix. Can you explain why theaters are resistant to working with Netflix and how Netflix might find a way around it to satisfy those filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, that's like the huge question as award season begins. You know, as long as Netflix opens their movies day and date, and they've been very adamant that their movies open on their streaming service, that that's the priority. Mm -hmm. And as long as that's the policy, they're not going to get space in theaters. No one is going to back off of that because then the floodgates are open. Mm -hmm. So the question then is, you know, does Netflix back off like Amazon Studios does? They abide by the theatrical Mm -hmm. window or does Netflix? How long is that window now? I mean, it's it's not set in stone Mm -hmm. anymore. I would say roughly around three months, Uh Um, you know, maybe a little bit shorter for the digital window. So the question is. Does Netflix back off or do they strike some innovative 
bargain. Um, you know, what they've done in the past couple of years since Peace of No Nation is they rent theaters or what it's what's called four walling mm-hmm. to qualify for awards consideration as well as to please the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But they don't report grosses, so they don't get any press mm-hmm. in box office stories. So there's none of that sort of in the zeitgeist coverage that a film in theaters gets. What, did the, what was the story with IPEX theaters, the small chain that I thought they had acquired it so that they could say we're giving at least a token theatrical release? No, they didn't. They struck some, just like they did with Landmark, they struck some deal where they got access to theaters. But essentially it was just a very glorified rental mm-hmm. agreement whereby you pay for the, the auditorium itself. So would it ever make sense for Netflix to do something like what I believe Cinerama did decades ago, which is why we still have like the Cinerama Dome and some of these things, which is to just buy your own chain of theaters? Right. I mean, there was, they did Landmark went on sale earlier this year mm-hmm. or put up on the block. And I think Netflix kicked the tires of Landmark, but the question is, you know, even Netflix, like, what do they do? A th- running a theater is a business. Mm-hmm. You have to book other films. Mm-hmm. You know, do they really want that headache? That's a pretty pricey proposition. Right. Especially when you're only hypothetically doing this to please sort of the older generation of awards voters who would like to hope that theatrical lives on forever. But the reality is for Netflix, as you say, with their business model, they make money because people subscribe to their streaming service. So why would they ever put any priority on theatrical except to placate voters? It does nothing for them for the, where they make money. Right. And isn't it sort of ironic and maybe a little hypocritical considering a lot of voters watch the movies on screeners? Right. You know, <laughs> so that gets into this whole weird but psychology, hypocritical, of, yeah. hypocritical territory right well so hypocrisy in hollywood pam i can't imagine (laughs) so all right well another thing about the theater going habits of americans these days this is interesting you reported that the average movie ticket price hit a record high of nine dollars and 38 cents in the second quarter of 2018 that's up five percent from the same time the year before all according to the national association of theater owners I wish we could get into a movie for $9.38 out here, but I guess that's why we're talking about national averages here. But what does that tell us that I guess just every year it's going to go up a little more? But actually, in fact, the attendance at movie theaters across America was up for the first half of 2018 too, right? Right, right, right. I mean, the the average ticket price is a very, you know, I don't know how helpful a stat it is because what they do is they just divide the number of people that go to the movie. I forget how they come about the calculation, but it's not... In Europe, you go by admissions. You Mm -hmm. actually keep track of how many people come through the door. Mm -hmm. And here we do the average ticket price, which is influenced by IMAX or other premium formats. Mm -hmm. So it's a very weird calculation. One final topic before we close that I want to bring up is this. What the hell is happening with MoviePass? We've been monitoring this over the last few months. It's been interesting to, you know, it was kind of an exciting idea. Go to as many movies as you want for whatever, $9.99. Then I think I waited until it went down to $6.99. I thought, how can I not do this? Meanwhile, by the time I got my card, they could barely keep the lights on. And they've changed the rules more often than a disgruntled five-year-old. So at this point, how are investors and cardholders reacting to the situation there, and what do you think the future holds for MoviePass? I think they're in a tough, a tough spot. I haven't looked at the stock today. I think yesterday, when 
even after the change, I think the stock was still way down. I don't want to say it was eight cents, but it was something really, really bad. And this was after going down fifty six percent on last Thursday alone. Right. So I and correct me. I again, I'm not sure I'm right on the eight cents, but yeah. you know, it's I think as a business to keep changing the rules is a little disingenuous. And a few months ago, I worked on a story with Paul Bond, one of one of our colleagues. Yes. And uh, saying that, you know, MoviePass might have to abandon their a movie a day offering. And in subsequent days after the story, like he took numerous digs at us and other people took digs at us. You the know, head of MoviePass. Yeah, yeah, saying that, you know, we were kind of fooled. And, you know, and if you look at the Twitter feeds, I mean, people are calling it the incredible shrinking MoviePass. And, <laughs> you know, there's... Uh, and, uh, you know, one guy said they keep charging him like three times for every movie he goes to. Well, the funniest thing is that apparently this morning there was an announcement. I didn't even know such a thing existed, but they said Movie Pass Films sets its first pick. Bruce Willis, the star in 10 minutes gone. That was going to be the title. And you can imagine within moments, a number of people, including our own Seth Abramovich weighed in. He had to. He said, "This is the movie you can see three times a month for nine dollars and ninety-five cents." <laughs> and my thing is, I think they got the order of the wording wrong. I think Movie Pass will be gone in ten minutes. But anyway, we'll see. It's something to keep watching. And Pam, we can find all of your box office coverage at thr.com. Thanks a lot, Pam McClintock. Thanks so much for having me. And now for my interview with Ted Danson. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter in Los Angeles, the 70-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how a struggling actor who had rarely gone to bars, never played baseball, and was decidedly not a cocksure ladies' man, wound up getting hired to play and then playing so well for so long, Sam Malone, a character who was all of those things on Cheers, how personal struggles convinced him that 11 seasons of Cheers were enough and even after the show ended, caused him to continue to spiral downward until, that is, he met the Oscar-winning actress Mary Steenburgen, who has been his wife since 1995. How, after six years of starring on another sitcom, CBS's Becker from 1998 through 2004, he wound up with two overlapping jobs which rejuvenated his love of acting and his career itself, namely playing himself on pal Larry David's HBO comedy series Curb Your Enthusiasm from 2000 through the present, and playing an out-and-out -out villain for the first time on the FX drama series Damages from 2007 through 2010. What led him to the part of Michael, a godlike figure, on Michael Schur's The Good Place, opposite Kristen Bell, among other fine actors, the first two seasons of which each demanded very different things from him as an actor, but which have both featured some of the best work of his career, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. We always begin just with a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in San Diego, California, home to Coronado Island. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how long, maybe maybe a year. Mm -hmm. Then Boulder, Colorado, my father was a professor of archaeology and anthropology, mm -hmm. and probably around th at three, maybe moved to Tucson, where he taught at the university. Then really my, you know, eight years old on was Flagstaff, Arizona, 
I read about yeah. the, your your childhood there was kind of interesting. A lot of your friends were Native Americans, is that right? Yeah, the museum. My father then, when we moved to Flagstaff, became the director of the Museum of Northern Arizona and Research Center, and which was this small but really important museum, partially because of where it was located. San Francisco peaks go up to 13,000, and an hour later, you can be theoretically at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Uh-huh. So you geologically, paleontology, archaeology, everything was right there at your fingertips. Lunar studies were done because of all the lava in the area. you know. So it was really a pretty neat place to work. But the mandate of the museum in the 20s or 30s was to try to stimulate and support and nurture the cultural, creative, artistic, spiritual, all the four corners Indians, the Mm -hmm. Hopi, Navajo, Zuni, Pueblo, to support their culture, because it was pretty much being made use of. You'd go to a liquor store in Flagstaff in the 50s, and you'd see museum-quality pieces of jewelry in these pond, you know, in the liquor stores. So anyway, that all changed. So the Hopi, my friend Raymond Coyne's father worked at the museum and lived on the property. So I literally got out of the car when we drove there and he was there and we just, without saying a word, started playing. I don't know what, you know, well, I, hide and seek or something. Well, it was funny because I saw one reference where you're saying, you, you know, like a lot of kids, you would play cowboys and Indians, but it was a different, yeah, yeah. <laughs> different. Type. My other friends were ranchers, yeah. sons and daughters right. who lived. Some lived in town and some lived about 60 miles away. Right. So it was really, yeah, a very kind of exotic growing up. Yeah. You said in one interview that I came across, quote, my father was kind of absentee to some degree. So women have always had the key to life for me, close quote. Was that, he was just very busy with work? I just thought that was interesting that you say from the beginning it was sort of that way. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, he, I knew he loved me. I knew he was proud of me and he was a great father, but he kind of abdicated the emotional fabric of the family, you know, uh, and gave it to my mother. And so I, I was really surprised. I remember going into his office as a 18-year-old, 17-year-old, and he said, I have to drop by the office at the museum and do something, and followed him in. And I watched him behave like this, you know, CEO. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, wait, wow, where did this, all this decisive, you know, right. where was that at, at home? I, I don't want to, it wasn't really a criticism, you know, and it was probably my whatever I brought to it at that early age. But it just seemed to me that women had the answers. Men were a lot of fun to be around, mm-hmm. very relaxing, great to work with, but really did not have the answers. Right. Well, so when did acting first sort of emerge as a, even just an interest before it became a real focus? And why do you think it did? I'm trying not to, you know, after I'm 70, so I've done a lot of interviews in yeah. the last 40 years. I'm trying not to do my by rote. Right. So the pauses are me <laughs> no, trying to I, figure I, out. I appreciate uh, it. I went away to school mm-hmm. for high school, mm-hmm. Kent School for Boys, yes. Kent, Connecticut. Yes. And really what saved me, because I was faking it, 
from the moment I walked in, it was like, where am I? And it was my idea, I thought. It was my parents. But I was very excited to go away because all my ranchers' sons and daughters and my sister were going away mm-hmm. to schools. So I thought this was great. It was my idea. But it was, it was really different. This is not a slam on the school. But, <laughs> you know, I left my friend Raymond. Mm-hmm. My Hopi friend Raymond, right. one one morning, the next night, I'm basically sitting around, maybe I compacted the time a little bit, right. but sitting at this table with, you know, benches and the 13-year-olds at one end and the 18, hulking 18-year-old, <laughs> you know, six formers at the other end, and you're just such a fish out of water. And we had cream-chipped beef on toast. <laughs> And I heard somebody at the other end of the table say, hey, kid, pass the skinned Indian. And I went, oh, dear dear Lord, where am I? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, It's a big change. I'm sure he, he, you know, went on to do great things and serve humanity. But it was a a startling, oh, Lord, where am I? Right. And I was not the academic. Mm -hmm. And so I basically faked my way. And the only thing that saved me was basketball. How tall are you or were at that point? I was a very slow, clumsy, couldn't, you know, barely touch the bottom of the net. Six foot two okay. kid. Okay. When I got there, I was six foot and 120 pounds. I was frighteningly skinny. Right. But it was my passion. It was mm-hmm. my love. I l- just lived for basketball. I was okay, but <laughs> lived for basketball. Right. And interestingly enough, I'm about to go visit my coach, Jim Woods. Really? Yeah. A bunch of us are going to go see him. He's That's not right. feeling too well. So. Literally tomorrow, I will be sitting with my coach in Charlotte. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> But he, you know, if I was in trouble, they, the only person I'd really listen to was him. Mm-hmm. And I just admired him hugely. So I thought I was going to go play basketball. I went to Stanford with my friend mm-hmm. and got to Stanford and come whenever, you know, we walked over to the gym to try out for Stanford freshman basketball. I, I didn't get even onto the court. I looked around and went, oh, <laughs> oh I've been, this is some cruel joke that people led me to believe I could right. play. This is the same year that Lou Alcindor was a freshman at <laughs> UCLA. A.K.A. Right? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> yeah, 1966. Wow. So very disappointed. Right. Did nothing at Stanford. I mean, literally nothing. <laughs> I'd wake up. My friend and I had found a, a tree stump that was flat on top from the, you know, the cut and hauled it up to our bedroom as a coffee table. And because we'd been in dorms for five years, we we got rid of the bunk beds and made a sofa that we'd, you know, so it was a nice looking little room. But anyway, I'd get up 1030, turn on music and I'd get on my tree stump and I'd, you know, do my basic go-go boy dancing to music (laughs) until around 11 Turn on my first television ever because I grew up without any TV really? in Flagstaff. And so I had bought this old 57, you know, model, whatever. It was a black and white. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I turned on was Dick Van Dyke reruns. <laughs> and then I'd watch that and then I'd get on my bicycle and go down and see if any other classes existed. And, <laughs> you know, it was literally did nothing. Right. <laughs> except I found acting. You know, one day I followed some young lady. It was, I was interested in, right. please have a cup of coffee with me. Right. Five minutes later, I have to go do this audition. Can I come? Yes. But to stay in the room, I had to audition. And so I made really? something up. 
Do you remember the, the young uh, yeah. lady's name who we have to Beth. thank? Yeah. Beth is her name. Yeah. And the play was Man East Man, you know, a Bertolt <laughs> yeah. Brecht right. play. And I improvised something. People laughed, and I went, hmm. It's not basketball, but right. it's not too bad. Right, you get a reaction. And yeah. I was just, it was like a light bulb. It was like all of life made sense, literally. Right. It was like I pulled my station wagon up to the back of the theater, and that's all I did. And then I transferred, because people said you should go back east, I transferred to Carnegie Mellon. And Carnegie Mellon was and is really known for its, yeah, its theater, theater program. Yeah. Yeah. I think our last episode was Judith Light. I think she ah. was, must have been there around the same yes. time. Right? And I just saw her last night did at you? the TCA Awards. <laughs> yeah. How did your parents feel about the fact that you were now going to be heading in this direction? They both were incredibly supportive. My mother, anything creative, she was thrilled. She wouldn't buy us toys, and she wouldn't buy us toy guns mm-hmm. as a kid. But I, if I carved them... yeah. She was thrilled. Anything creative was wonderful. My father was supportive, but I think also was, well, maybe you can get a degree so you could teach it, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. You were now at Carnegie getting your BFA, you graduate in 72, go out into the real world. And I wondered at that point what your ideal vision of the future was. Were you hoping just to be able to work on the stage for the rest of your life? Or was there always a hope that screen acting no, would be it didn't. it didn't matter. Yeah? It literally, I don't think I thought about it. I don't think I thought about my career until maybe the second or third year of Cheers. Really? Until then, I almost didn't care. Yeah. I did, but acting class was just as much fun as a job. Mm. I loved acting. I loved the process. I loved studying it. I went to New York. Got an off-Broadway job, understudying. This is right out of Carnegie. Right out of Carnegie. A Tom Stoppard play called The Real Inspector Hound and Mm -hmm. After Magritte, and it was really funny material. Mm -hmm. So for a year and a half, I did that. But literally didn't care. I was just smitten by acting. I would take extra jobs in commercials. You know, didn't matter, whatever. Was the Stoppard play the first time that you realize you might have sort of an inclination for comedy specifically? No. Swear to God, there was no, no thought behind it. <laughs> let me let me just tell me what to go study, what right. scene to do next. Tell me what, you know, just put me in, coach. Put right, me in. I didn't right. care where you put me. Right. I really was just thrilled to be part of the tribe. And those first few years, I guess you were you based in New York or you mm-hmm. so I cuz yeah. if you look through the credits it seems like for the first you know handful of years there was a lot of time on two particular soap operas Somerset and the Doctors mm-hmm. but also bit parts in or one episode or whatever of a bunch of series that people will certainly remember Laverne and Shirley Benson Magnum PI That was LA that's after I moved So then you what prompted the move by then, I had been married to Randy, who was an actress at Carnegie Mellon, and we were married for five years. Mm-hmm. And then we separated, and then I got divorced, and then I met the mother of my children. And I think there was a combination of not being able to get arrested <laughs> in, New York, in New York, you know. Aside uh, from these soaps. Yeah, I mean, theater-wise, yeah. which is why you're in New York. Right, right. I didn't seem to be doing that well. And the, the auditions that I did get, what excited me most was right. something with a camera. Right. But I also knew we were probably going to have kids, and the idea of being West 
where my kind of roots are and where my comfort zone is felt right. So off we went. Had you felt prepared for screen acting when that first started, I guess, with the soaps? Or was that something that the value of the soaps was learning how to do that? The value of the soaps was that I will never be scared again like I was then. It was the actor's back then basic nightmare. (laughs) You got the scripts the day before. Mm. You were saying things that were similar than the things you said yesterday, but slightly different Mm. because it was basically like, you remember how I came up into this room and we started this interview five minutes ago? And you, you're saying this to <laughs> somebody who was, right, yeah, right. You're, you're talking to the audience and always trying to remind them. So it was, an, and there was no humor and it wasn't live, but it was right next door to live. Mm-hmm. You had like, let's say you had 40 minutes for your half hour mm-hmm. in the big mainframe computer at NBC. Mm-hmm. And if you missed that, you were screwed. Right. <laughs> so it was live, you right. know. And so you must have, oh. through that, learned how to... I was, be a quick study, right? I don't know if I can pull any like really good thing out of the experience <laughs> other than I will never be scared again. Right. I was hired on Somerset to be the town coxman who was this coming on to everybody. And right. the very first scene I was playing was somebody who had been there for like a year, two years and, uh, you know, very seasoned. And, and the night before I had my first kind of nervous breakdown, you know, and somebody said, take a Valium. So I took a Valium <laughs> and me and Valium don't get along. So I was just pouring right. broadcast news, pouring sheets, <laughs> you know, of sweat down my face in the middle of this casual seduction right. at a restaurant. And the producer of the soap went, uh, no, let's make him the town sleaze. <laughs> <laughs> who turned all his friends into the mafia. Oh, my God. I mean, it was great it was, and and just terrifying. But you knew that you yeah. you wanted to go on to other things. So I see the those TV series I mentioned sort of began to maybe overlap with the first films, The Onion Field as a detective in L.A., Body Heat as a kind of geeky DA, all of which is to kind of set up before we really get into how Chairs came about, the idea that you... Ted Danson would be either a baseball player or a guy who spent a lot of time at bars or a ladies' man. None of those were really true, right? None. (laughs) Literally none. The scripts were brilliant. The shows were wonderful the first year of Cheers, Mm -hmm. but I truly believe that it took me about a year and a half to understand Sam Malone and to have accumulated enough not arrogance, but confidence slash arrogance. Mm-hmm. I'm out. You know, people are voting on you as soon as you're on TV mm-hmm. and you're blasted out into the universe. So part of you realizes, oh, to hell with it. You're not going to please everybody. Mm-hmm. And I started to develop enough of that confidence to play Sam Malone uh-huh. because picking up girls, totally foreign to me, bars, <laughs> totally foreign to me. Well, let's just go over the basics of how it all came about. First, just to familiarize anyone who maybe was living in another country or something, not that they wouldn't have been able to see it anyway, it was everywhere, but just, or if they came along afterwards, Sam, a Red Sox relief pitcher turned Boston area bartender, who also happens to be a bit of a shallow and vain ladies' man. I think that's a fair description. Shallow, I'm not so sure. Not so sure? And alcoholic. And alcoholic. Recovering, recovering alcoholic. And this was on NBC from 1982 to 1993. 
And I wanted to ask how you even came to the attention of the folks who ended up casting you. I saw you had appeared on one episode, I think, of Taxi. And that was the prior collaboration of Glenn Charles, Les Charles, and James Burroughs, who had kind of made their name at Mary Tyler Moore Productions, which I guess, I don't know if they would have, I think it would have been after the Dick Van Dyke era that you were introduced to, but, um, but they basically the same, the same genealogy, the the live audience sitcom, right? So when they reunited after taxi to create chairs, I I've read it was because they wanted to have another workplace set thing, but a, a place that you would be more kind of happy to hang out in rather than, you know, a bar seemed like a more... And uh, anybody could walk through the door. Yes. As which makes to, stories a lot more available to you yes. than, a, you know, a taxi garage. It's right. a little harder to get the stories generated. So was it that taxi appearance, though, that made them think of you when they're trying to cast? Um, just as according to Jimmy Burroughs, yeah. Jimmy also directed Best of the West, mm-hmm. which was a half-hour Western sitcom mm-hmm. that I don't know how long it lasted, but I auditioned for a part, and he remembered me. I actually remember him, too, mm-hmm. but he remembered me from that. Then, coincidentally, I was called in to do kind of a last-second replacement thing on Taxi, mm-hmm. the hairdresser, and they, Les and Glenn and Jimmy, were in offices next door, and while I was rehearsing that week for Taxi, they asked me to come in, and I met them for the first time. And they asked you to come in as sort of a general meeting about the future, or they were specifically already talking about Cheers. No, they were working on Cheers yeah. already. Interesting. And they had narrowed it down because they had gone all over the place from wide receiver, <laughs> you know, they weren't quite sure of the sport. Right. But they had now narrowed it down, I think, to, I think they got to baseball by the time I got there. I'm not sure. Well, what I had read was that for the Central Twosome, which everybody remembers, Sam and Diane, they were looking at three different couples, couples potentially yeah. as all, always it was going to be a pairing of these different we mixed and matched for oh, about okay. a week okay. we uh, in the offices we would read for them for uh, Les and Glenn and Jimmy in these different pairings I think we all had a chance to pair up with other people and then they finally put Shelley Long and me together and I to this day, and then we went down and had this basic audition off in front of 30 people from the studio mm-hmm. and, and you know each couple would come down and they'd put a plank over some they'd made a little bar and put some stools up and we literally each couple came down and auditioned a scene or two and then just to mention I believe this is correct that the other two couples that it could have been Fred Dreyer, who was a former football star, eventually yeah. starred on the show Hunter. It would have been with Julia Duffy later of Newhart. And then the other one would have been William Lisa. Devane of Knott's Landing and Lisa Eichhorn, who would be in the film Yanks. Correct. So was it clear to you yourself that if you were to be with any of the potential female partners that you and Shelley had the most chemistry? No. It wasn't? No. I mean, chemistry is such a strange word. But I definitely felt it was a fair fight between mm-hmm. me and Shelley. We were very different in many ways, but she was, if you smacked her, she would haul off and smack <laughs> you way harder right. in that kind of acting way. Right. I claim, and I, I really do believe this to be true, that I got 
Sam Malone because I was good with Shelley. Shelley was outstanding. Shelley was, I don't think you'd seen that character since Lucille Ball, mm-hmm. you know, that strong and just remarkable character. And she just nailed it from day one. And you've uh, said, you know, a minute ago, you were talking about that for the first year and a half or whatever that you were on chairs once it got going you didn't feel you fully had the character but you've said elsewhere that you felt that in that year and a half she kind of carried it yeah i mean all the writing was spectacular and all the other actors and characters were spectacular and we you know but she was i think kind of a standout you know in the beginning yeah i remember watching the pilot and asking to talk to jimmy and just crying Saying I'm awful, I, I suck, I'm terrible, and he looked. He listened for a little while, then just walked off laughing. Because <laughs> he he saw what everybody else saw. Well, it was yeah, that it, it was worked. Working. It yeah. worked. I just didn't quite understand it. To prepare to play the part, I don't know if this would have been before or after the pilot, but I read that you did go to bartending school. I did. What was the value of that? <laughs> well. To learn how to mix drinks, right. to be somewhat familiar behind a bar, right. I took it very seriously. And, you know, for the first month or two of Cheers, I would make, you know, these Manhattans and grasshoppers and all these bizarre drinks until I realized I didn't give a damn. <laughs> you know, they were shooting above my right, hands right, anyway right. most of the time. So, you know, they want the joke, not right, the drink. Right, right. So, uh, you know, I ended up washing shot glasses, cutting limes and lemons. Right. And pouring beers. That's funny. Once the show got on the air, how quickly and in what ways did fame impact your life? Like you had not really been, I I don't, obviously you'd been in things that people saw, but you were now at a different level. Yes. Television does do that, especially back then. It was the amount of people that would watch a network show, because there are only really three networks at that point, maybe Fox, that it was astounding the number of people. So... It was a little bit of rock and roll. I think the biggest difference was when we were syndicated the third year and all of a sudden we're everywhere all the time. time. And you literally can feel the energy when you walk out the door. Even if you're looking at your shoes, you are all of a sudden you go, what's different? What's going on? I've always thought and I was. I was lucky to kind of, I think, to realize this. You know, being a celebrity is kind of like being a five-year-old in a room with all of the adults mm-hmm. looking at you. Mm-hmm. You can spin a kid out. If, if every adult throws their focus on a little kid, mm-hmm. they'll just bounce off the walls. Right. And I realized that I needed to do something with that energy. And for me, it was deflecting it into ocean advocacy, yes. which is a whole other story. But I... I kind of got that I better do that. The other thing I got was you, you're a host. <laughs> you're a host to everybody's memory of something funny that you were part of. And, you know, you don't want to disappoint folks. So you, you host their right. memories well as part of your job out in right. the world. For the first two seasons of Cheers, people may not remember this, but the ratings were abysmal. Oh, dead and last one week. I was going to say, this 70th. is November of 1982. I saw you guys 68th of 68 <laughs> primetime shows. One writer in the New York Times, I think, looking back after you had turned it around, wrote something that was pretty interesting, just kind of outlining the reasons why it actually 
in some way shouldn't have ever worked. And I just want to quote this back to you. Quote, the series chose a bar setting just when the old-fashioned neighborhood bars were disappearing from the urban landscape. It dabbed freely in sexual promiscuity just as AIDS was filtering into the national consciousness. It featured some serious boozing just when 12-step alcohol reforms were becoming fashionable. And in Mr. Danson's Sam Malone, it offered a sex-crazed male chauvinist just as feminists across the country were making formidable gains, close quote. So why do you think, first of all, that it started off so poorly in the ratings? And then why do you think Brandon Tartikoff and NBC kept it on the air through that period? And then finally, part three of this question, what the heck turned it around? Yeah, we used to credit Brandon Tartikoff for, and Grant Tinker. Well, Grant Tinker definitely had the philosophy of hire really bright creative people that you respect and then let them do their job. Mm-hmm. Don't micromanage people who are who have a pretty good handle on their what they're trying to create. Mm-hmm. So that was true. Brandon later told us after we just, you know, knighted him as the most right. the smartest, most astounding <laughs> person who said, Oh, I would have replaced you. I just had nothing, nothing. to replace you with. Because <laughs> they know? were the lowest rated yeah. network also. That was yeah. generally. Yeah. Yeah. But also he was very supportive and we lived in bliss, the actors. Yeah. They just said, You're doing great, everything's great, don't worry about it. You know. Yeah. And the press. Press liked us yeah. a lot and wrote about us a lot. So even if we were low in the ratings, the critics' response, I think, made NBC happy. Mm-hmm. What turned us around was Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. The Cosby Show came roaring in, I think, the third or fourth year of Cheers, third year maybe, and swept Thursday night mm-hmm. NBC behind it. Mm-hmm. And... I think we'd worked our way up into the 30s or something, mm-hmm. and then we were all of a sudden a top 10 show, Did specifically they, because of the Cosby they show. They moved you guys to Thursday night. We were always, always Thursday. Thursday night? We were always Thursday okay. night. So having them as the lead-in, though, it just yeah. kept people around. Oh, yeah. yeah. that that That's the way of television. Yeah. You know, If you get somebody to turn on your network at 8 or right. 8.30 or something in droves, then right. you're good for the night. So that was true. And, you know, it's bizarre nowadays to hesitate when you say Bill Cosby <laughs> or give the Cosby show credit. Right. The Cosby show was astounding yeah. and, you know, deserves. Yeah. So anyway, that was how Cheers got to be there. The reason why everything, all those things, why it shouldn't have worked. First off, the show was funny. Mm-hmm. Just still is. Mm-hmm. You turn it on and it's funny. I'm, I'm not the one who's supposed to be saying this. It's but true. It, no, is, yeah. it, is, it is funny. And the characters were lovable losers who banded together in a family, you know, and came to a place where everybody knows your name. Right. You know, that song, I think. I, I used to think that after the show went off the air, you could just have a picture of the bar and play that song and people would have tuned in because it made you feel good. Absolutely. It made you feel like, oh, I want to belong. Mm-hmm. I want to be, even if I'm a loser, <laughs> I can be loved, right, right, you know, right. and, uh, you know, have fun with my friends. It's just a fun fact that we should note that Cheers and Lou Grant are the only two shows that ever finished both dead last at one point oh, really? and number one in the ratings. That's, that's right. a turnaround that's <laughs> unbelievable. But you've said that Sam was, quote, the epitome of arrogance, close quote, and that, in fact, his professional background as a relief pitcher 
kind of explains that, right? Well, that is, I mean, that is a relief pitcher. I mean, I don't know if this is literally true because yeah. I'm, you know, I got picked last when it came to baseball. <laughs> you know, we had Ted last week. It's your turn. Right. <laughs> but yeah, you come in when the team's in trouble. Yeah. And you save the day. Mm -hmm. That takes a great deal of confidence and arrogance and all of those things. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about somebody who's come up in a lot of these episodes. I think most recently when we had Matt LeBlanc on and we were talking about friends as well, and that is Jimmy Burroughs we were talking about. I think that he's probably the person who's had the greatest influence on the television everybody loves who they've never the average Joe may not yeah. know who it is. Yeah, it's and, true. You know, and in your case with Cheers, I read, I think it was 230 of the 275 episodes of Cheers he directed. Yeah. Later, similar proportion of Friends and many of the other best yeah. shows. What makes him so good? First off, he loves actors and he loves writers. So two camps that could perhaps be antagonists who are equally sensitive, mm -hmm. the writers and the you know actors. He's in the middle, translating for both sides. So he gets the best out of the actors and he gets the best out of the writers. He would constantly reassure the writers in the eighth or ninth year when we would barely show up. No, don't worry about it. It's funny. But we haven't heard the words. It's all right. It's funny. Don't worry. He could let us be as crazy as we needed to be as long as we showed up on shoot night and delivered the goods. Mm -hmm. And he was able to monitor all that craziness and in the most relaxed way. He's also a genius with uh, physical comedy. The times that he was not directing, mm -hmm. I almost literally did not know how to play Sam Malone because I was basically p playing for Jimmy wow. and Les and Glenn and the yeah. other writers, yeah. but for Jimmy. And he actually, when Les and Glenn, in later seasons, they sort of stepped back. He was there he was from there. beginning to end, yeah. right? Listen, he's my show business daddy, Jim really? Burroughs. I owe him so much. Les and Glenn and Jimmy. Mm -hmm. The reason why you and I are sitting here is because <laughs> of him. Everything I've done since then amazing. You know, has been because of Jimmy Burroughs and Les and Glenn. Amazing. Well, after your fifth of the 11 season, Shelley left the show. I wondered how concerned were you that taking out a key ingredient could spoil the recipe in a way. Were you confident that the writing would still carry the show, or did you, was there any kind of apprehension that this is a major change? I should have been more concerned. I think, you know, my, the egotistical me probably thought, oh, dear, what if this dance team was only Shelley? You know, and she goes, and I, I don't know how to dance anymore kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. I think there was that. I think... Shelley was at that point ready to go and had made that kind of obvious. So I'm sure there was a defensive, well, go ahead then, mm -hmm. you know, go on. Mm -hmm. um, but it was probably more defensive than, than anything else. We'd also experienced the death of Nikki Colasanto, yes. who played the coach, who was really the kind of sweet center of cheers mm -hmm. for two years, three years, and when he died, it was like, oh dear, what will happen to Cheers? Right. And along came Woody Harrelson and <laughs> took you know the world by storm. Right. They added Kelsey Grammer as Frazier the second year, I think it was mm -hmm. the second year. Mm -hmm. So you had this kind of faith that the writers could 
deliver characters that would be loved. And you kind of knew that if the bar, if somebody walked into the bar and the bar embraced that character, the odds were pretty good that the public would embrace mm-hmm. that. And in walked Kirstie Alley. Right. <laughs> you know? So sixth season, right at the first yeah. one after Shelley's gone, it was like, you know, it just had a whole new... And she was like, she's, I don't know if she called herself this or what, like this biker chick from hell. You know, she <laughs> she played woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown way far too over her skis, right. better than anybody I think I'd ever seen. She was so good. Well, the Charleses said, in one thing I read, that that was partly designed because of the fact that she actually came onto the show as a very nervous person joining yes. such a big head. Yes, yeah. So they tailored it to her. Yeah, yeah, they they do that. Writers <laughs> are horrible about right. taking your <laughs> foibles and insecurities and making them part of the show. Right. But she was astounding. They discovered that we couldn't, that we were not Sam and Diane. Shelley and I were such opposites that it was opposites attracting. Right. So it was really interesting right. in a way. Kirstie and I were cut more of the same fabric, right. so we were more like kindred spirits, right. both messed up. And there was going to be less of that whole, you and Shelley were the sort of original, will they or won't they get yeah. together? Now we've seen that with friends in the office and so many things, but that really wasn't even an element of you. Of, no, of I Sam just and... constantly wanted to conquer her and yeah. you know get her into bed, but right. she was more interested in her career and money and social climbing. <laughs> So, yeah, but we needed that third yes. triangle. Right. We should note that during, I guess, hiatus, obviously during hiatuses from Chairs, you were now making films like Three Men and a Baby, which came out in 87, and Three Men and a Little Lady came out in 1990. Also, something that came up maybe a week or so ago when we recorded an episode that hasn't aired yet with Glenn Close. And that was the very acclaimed TV movie, Something About Amelia, in which 33 years before Damages, you were working with Glenn playing a guy who basically is- Committed incest. Incest. And not what people expected from the guy who they associated with Sam Malone. And yet- very well received. You got an Emmy nomination and a won a Golden Globe. I'm interested in what you think when you think back on those, but more interested even in the fact that you've said that never on any of these hiatuses could you find anything that ever really stacked up, particularly comedically, with Cheers. You could put any four episodes of Cheers you've said next to each other, and it would be very hard to find a feature-length film that would compete. Yeah, probably not true, but it probably made us feel good. <laughs> you know, made us feel good that we weren't in the big comedies of the day or something. I don't know. Well, Three Men but, and a Baby was a was, pretty big hit. Yeah, that's true. But it, it, there is some degree of truth right. in that Cheers right. was really funny. Right. But no, I yeah, I don't stand by that one. <laughs> well, yeah. so that was me after I'd learned how to be arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, Kind of amazing stat, and I don't know if anyone in TV history has matched this, but you were nominated for an Emmy for all 11, each of the 11 seasons of Chairs, but it took them until the ninth to finally give you the thing, and then you got it again on the 11th, the last one. I guess that's- can I Can I just kind of rewrite history? I don't think I was nominated the first year. 
Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. And I've been, everybody has said, yes, you were, but no, I don't think I was. So you think somebody screwed Not up that I remembered that Shelly was and I wasn't. Not that that <laughs> had anything to do with how I felt. Is it possible you're thinking Golden Globe instead of Emmy? Oh, who, I'll check at, again. At but 70, I, who knows what I'm thinking. But, but I, I'll, I, I'll, yeah. I'll double check. But I guess let's stipulate that. Yeah. Here are some other things I want to just say in the preface to the to this question. When Sam and Diane first got together romantically, the audience broke out in applause. Each of the last eight seasons of the show finished in the top ten in the ratings. And then on May 20th, 93, just over 25 years ago, after 11 years on NBC, which was the longest run of any comedy in the history of that network— the series finale was watched by, I, I've seen two numbers, 80 million or 93.9 million. But either way, that's good enough for the second highest rated series finale in TV history after MASH's 10 years yeah. earlier. So if you would set aside all humility and answer this question, why do you think people cared so much about the show and the people on it to produce those kinds of reactions, whether it's the Emmy nominations or the ratings or the, you know, all these things I'm talking about. People really had to feel a, a deep personal connection. So what did that? The writing I'm not, and all of the actors mm -hmm. were wonderful mm -hmm. in their parts. And Jimmy used to say, the longer you're on TV, the longer you're on TV. <laughs> it's just kind of a truism. Right. And you, if you are part of a family of love, you know, funny, lovable losers mm -hmm. who stick together through thick and thin, and funny is the name of, you know, the most important thing. I think, I guess it, it hit some, something in, in America or something that wanting to belong that wanting to be part of, wanting to go someplace. I, maybe we were losing our feeling of being able to be small town mm -hmm. special and we were all getting a little lost in the shuffle. So we all did want a place to mm -hmm. go where everyone knew their name. Mm -hmm. That was probably deeper than I, I, I really that. believe. I just think it was funny. Well, <laughs> it was both, funny. Let's go apply. with funny. <laughs> so why did it end when it did? I had read that a 12th <laughs> season was already kind of arranged in the minds of Paramount and NBC. But yeah. wh why did you kind of say that's it? Well, without going into details, you know, my life was kind of in my private life mm -hmm. was in such a turmoil. And publicly, it was a messy, messy time in my life. Privately, I was working my ass off mm -hmm. on myself. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted to stop being a liar. I wanted to be creative 90% of my time and I wanted to grow up, mm -hmm. you know, and I worked really hard to do that. Um, took it really seriously, you know. Um, and so it w kind of felt like if I'm going, two things, if I'm going to make a real difference in my life, mm -hmm. I needed to start afresh. Mm -hmm. And I also felt like as an actor that if I wanted to be doing something else and find out more about myself creatively, just like I wanted to find out more about myself in life, mm -hmm. that I needed to make that break. And by the way, in my defense, yeah, yeah, yeah. every year for about the last three years, the cast would go, oh, come on, you know, this has got to be the last year. 
So we were all kind of talking about, well, this year, that year. Then when I did say, okay, this year, everyone went, what? You know, so actually, that's slightly bogus. But it was in the air that yeah. we were we were looking for an ending, some of the cast. Or I have a better answer. Yeah. If I hadn't decided to move on, Kelsey wouldn't have played Frasier. <laughs> One of the yeah, one of the, the more successful spinoffs yeah, ever. Yes, so it was it was me selflessly <laughs> taking one for Kelsey Grammer. This is not something that I think either of us are going to want to harp on. But I, the thing that you're talking about about needing to work on yourself, you're saying that happened to precipitate your wanting to get out of chairs. But in the view of the public, that wasn't clearly an issue that there was something to work on until a few months after the end of right. Chairs when you had your thing right. at the Friars Club. Right. You were just, again, very briefly, right. you were dating Whoopi Goldberg. Right. I was having an affair. Having an affair with Whoopi Goldberg. Because I was married. Oh, okay. I didn't realize so, and, that. And, and so that's not a slam on Whoopi Goldberg at all. It's right. a slam on me. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. that's part of the messy. I had two children, so that's, you know, by any definition, really messy. Sure. And needs to be taken seriously. Sure. And, once again, nothing to do with Whoopi no. Goldberg, but with me. And then the stuff, though, in your defense that you took flack for doing at the Friars Club, which is supposed to be, I guess, an off-the-record kind of right. private affair. <laughs> no, no press. Uh, ha, ha, no ha. press. You know, <laughs> so some people took racial offense to what transpired with blackface or whatever, which you've certainly apologized for over the years. But what they may not know from what I've read from you, is that it was actually done essentially with the blessing oh, and Lord. encouragement I, of Whoopi Goldberg. You know right? what? I mean, everything, anything I do, you know, if you stick your finger into the racial right. pie in this country, you're an idiot if you don't think that you are going to stir up a lot of feelings, and rightfully so. So, mm -hmm. one, I was an idiot. Two, I thought I could pull this off, which I will describe, which was arrogant so I was stupid and arrogant. <laughs> I knew that I was supposed to roast one of the funniest, most outrageous women in America who happened to be African-American. So what am I going to do? So I listened to tapes. I listened to Jewish comedians would get up and roast mm -hmm. whoever they were roasting and say the most horrendously horrible things to say to another Jewish right. human being or blacks, you know, or whatever. And I went, well, how, how am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. You know, and I can't, I have to be funny, but I'm not a comedian. So I will, I will do a performance theater kind of thing. And Whoopi used to talk about in her shows how it's not, it's the intention behind the words. And she was talking about the N word mm -hmm. and how you can, be the sweetest, kindest, most genteel human being speech-wise and just cut people off and decimate them racially mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the words. It has to do with your intentions and your da-da-da. And it was part of her act. So I thought, ah, this is what I will do. I will, I will, to be able to say these horrible things, the joke will be that I will be in blackface, which will give me, a, you know, the ability to say these things. So... It was literally a theater piece, and I did run it by her. Once again, I'm still an idiot <laughs> and still arrogant. And when I started, I could, it was like sticking my finger into a light socket. My whole body went zzz, and I went, oh, 50% of the people in this huge audience 
hate what I'm doing. Right. I mean hate what I'm doing. Right. 30% got it and wished I hadn't done it, right. and 20% liked it. It was right. that kind of moment of, <gasps> okay. So by the time you walked off the stage, yeah. you knew it was a problem. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I also had an edge. So my mm -hmm. comedy didn't have the right light-hearted touch right. to it because we had broken up by then, and we were threatened to be sued if we didn't show up. Wow. So we showed up, and the press was all about, well, this has to be, the only explanation for this rela relationship has to be sexual. That's all. So part of me was had a big, huge yeah. fuck you yeah. when I stepped in front of the crowd, which is a mistake. And so, it, you know, whatever. I, this is the most I've explained. I did get a review about a month later from the New York Times theater critic oh. who at least called it for what it was, which was right. my attempt at a piece of theater. Right. You're saying that you're being in a bad place may have brought about something like that. And then certainly the fallout after it couldn't have improved your how you felt and were going about things. And then I read a amazing. No, I, I knew I was an idiot. I, I knew that it, right after that happened. Yeah. Another big moment in my life. This is what car, I wanted to tell you. It was a car yeah. accident. Yeah. And I was driving up to Panga in the rain. I was going to a American Oceans campaign advisory board and I was a little late and it was misty rainy and I went around the curve and my rear the rear end of the car spun out a little bit but stayed on the road and I heard this voice say hey you better slow down in my head mm -hmm. and then I went no screw that I don't have to slow down next curve I spun out completely almost went off the cliff slammed into an embankment and got nailed by a pickup coming the other way and it was that real wake up of, oh, you know, Something's life is very, very, yeah. very short. Yeah. There's no trumpets. It's a little thread. And when you die, you die by yourself. Mm -hmm. So you better wake up. You better wake up. And it was all a very kind of arrogant time in my life. And you know what? It also propelled me into some place that I am so grateful Exactly, because know, to quote something you'd said before, quote, about a month later I met Mary, as in Mary Steenburgen, and I don't think that I would have even seen her or she would have seen me if I hadn't, you know, woken up, close quote. Yep. And you guys got married How after how long? Uh, we were together, I think, a year and a half, yeah. two years. What was that, probably that year and a half, two years, like from a professional standpoint? Were you interested in working again or did you need a break after Cheers? The other part of that I want to ask is that very few performers have ever become iconic as one TV character and then again as another, I guess presumably because people inside and outside of the business so associate you with that one character, the first character, that they become resistant to seeing you as someone else. So after Cheers, did you find that that was a problem, you know, particularly as the show continued to air in syndication everywhere? And were you concerned that you might never have that sort of success with another character. You know what? I'm just sitting here mulling over what I've told you the last 10, 15 minutes yeah. about the roast and all of that. Yeah. I'm not quite sure I heard what you just said. Uh, sure. Wondering whether I should have, yeah. you know, because it's so not about my part in it, mm -hmm. but it's so there's so many people who are very present who that had an impact on. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell if I'm talking out of, not out of school, but because it was in the press, but 
inappropriately. So there you are. I'm sorry. So back no. to you. What's your question? Sure. I, I heard the buildup. No, was the sure. The, the basic question is, were you concerned that, as has been the case for many people who have had a iconic TV character, that that in some ways would be an albatross, that you sure. would not be able to be seen as somebody else? I don't know if it's literally that time, but I remember thinking, oh, Lord, please don't let my fame outweigh my ability to get work. Mm -hmm. That would be, I think, hard. Did you find that it was an impediment? Well, you know, I think critics and, and audience are slightly reluctant to let go of the image that you gave them for 11 years. But no, I think it's, you know, it's just up to you. It's up to you to find material. It's up to you to find good stories. Because if, if you let go of who you are and try to start over at zero, and the times that stuff didn't work is when either the writers or I were trying to make use of a fondness for Sam Malone in some version, you know, that it didn't quite work. So in between... The end of Cheers in 93 and the beginning of Becker in 98, where just to contextualize again, this is Dr. John Becker, grumpy but good-hearted doctor. This was on CBS from 98 to 2004. You had a few years there where it seems like you were maybe figuring out what the road forward would best right. look like because there were some things, and I imagine this was probably the most frustrating one in that period would have been ink, right? This is you and Mary. Yeah, yeah, frustrating in that it lasted a year and it got ratings that I would kill for. Right, today. today yeah. <laughs> you know, and Diane English wrote it. You know, Mary was fantastic in it. Right. But it just didn't quite catch on. But what I think we, bo we both learned from that mm -hmm. was you do not, this was kind of a turning point too for me career-wise in that, what you need to do is find the, the, the most creative person in the room and then ask them nicely if you can be part of this thing that they just have to write. Mm -hmm. And then you go, oh, wow, can I be part of that in any capacity? Mm -hmm. If you have things that are written for you or created for you, I think that's a mistake. Unless you are somebody, a stand-up comic who knows their voice so strongly that, you know, that's then, of course, you have things written for you and for that voice. But if you're just an actor-actor, your best shot is to look for the writing. Find something that somebody wrote because they just had to get it out right. of them, uh, uh, the writer, and then be part of it. Because then you're likely to have uh, something authentic. Otherwise, you're cutting out a creative step. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to write for Mary and for Ted... And starting from scratch. And that's 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 hard to do. That's very interesting. And obviously it's clear that what you're talking about, about regardless of the size of the part, regardless of the genre of the show or whatever, with your some of your more recent TV series that I, you know, will ask you about briefly in a moment, like Bored to Death or Damages, that's I think the the what you're yeah. talking about, right? Yeah. But Becker though was a mid season replacement, did quite well for, for CBS over the six years or whatever that it was on. But you've said, and I thought this was really interesting, this is another quote I want to read back to you, quote, Chairs and Becker were great, but I hung on to that style longer than I should have. I felt like I'd stayed at the party too long, close quote. 
What do you mean by that? Do you think it was the well, sitcom it, it, format? Well, it didn't happen right at Becker. I, I thought Becker was kind of amazing in that it had such a strong voice. You know, somebody who loves and cares for humanity but hates <laughs> the way people are doing it, <laughs> you know, and wants to yell at everybody for being an idiot. Is it tough? character to carry but I loved it was such a different voice than Sam Malone and mm -hmm. I, I loved Dave Hackle who created it as a friend today so it wasn't so much that it was I did something after that mm -hmm. that didn't quite work wonderful writers but it just didn't work partly because I think we we're trying to do a version of Ted that was 10 years younger mm -hmm. you know it didn't it didn't fit anymore and that's when I kind of went I'm not funny to myself. You know, other people are doing it way better than I am. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go back to movies. I'll do this. I'll, I called my friend Jeffrey Katzenberg mm -hmm. and said, put me in anything. Yeah. You don't have to pay me. I don't care. Which is how I ended up in Saving Private Ryan. Yes. Yeah. Which was just a couple of days work, but it was. So that's what I thought. Yeah. And then two things happened. Larry David, being part of that, right. where it was just so playful and different that it just tickled me, you know. So I started to have a laugh again about going right. to work and damages. Yes. Damages well, was just astounding for me. So first with, with Curb Your Enthusiasm, which has been now going for like 17, 18 years, 2000, the span of it, 2000 right. to 2017, I guess, were the most recent episodes. You knew Larry just actually genuinely on a personal level before, because people see this, you're playing Ted Danson, but I don't think they quite know what's real and what's not. I know that even when right. more recently <laughs> they had no you kidding. and Mary divorced, right. I think we, you got some concern. <laughs> Calls and say, what, are you guys all right? Tell me it's not true. And we'd had dinner with them the month before. You know, oh my it's very God. television, very right. powerful and bizarre. <laughs> yeah, we met Larry and Lori, his then wife, mm -hmm. back in about a year, I think, before he'd shot the pilot. And I, I actually remember sitting there watching it, going, "Oh boy, this sucks." <laughs> and but he was such a nice guy and. Right. Hey, Larry, if you ever need us to play ourselves, we'd be happy to, you know, right. come whatever to be supportive. Did you see that you're doing thing. him a favor there? Yes, yeah. yes, totally. <laughs> you know, and it, he changed my life, right. you know. And it's fun because it's largely improvised? Well, it's improvised like, you know, he spends four months by himself or with a team of writers working on stuff. And like any script, mm -hmm. but especially comedy, you you break it down, you know, the arc of the show, mm -hmm. the season, the, then the, the bit arcs of the episodes, and then each scene, and then each beat in every scene, so that when you hand it to one of the writers and say, go write the dialogue, it's basically written. He takes it right up to that point and doesn't write the dialogue, but there's very specific things that he knows, yes, they hit. Yes. What do you think Curb showed other people in the industry about you? Because there's a few... Things that I would imagine, it seems like the fact that you're willing to laugh at yourself or make fun of yourself, the fact that you'll play a part of any size if it's contributing something to a project, maybe even other things. What do, what do you think it told people about you? I think there's a tie-in between Kirby Enthusiasm for me mm -hmm. and Damages, mm -hmm. which was 
Well, if I can jump ahead a little bit to damages, sure. right before the week before we shot that, Glenn and Todd and Daniel, the writers, came to me and said, I know this is going to sound strange, but would you mind going to our acting coach? And it was like, oh, dear Lord, they think I suck. <laughs> but I was smart enough to say yes. And his name was Harold yeah. Guskin. And he's, uh, he's passed on, but he was an amazing acting coach. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of Glenn had gone to see him. And, mm-hmm. and so she was all in favor and said, you'll really enjoy it or whatever. Off I went. And he had me read something, you know, from the script. And he went, okay, you know, <laughs> you know, 30 seconds in, okay, I can tell you're a really nice actor. I know that when I give you this paragraph to say that you are going to say all of it because you're a really nice actor, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it was like, you need to start adopting this. You know, maybe I'm going to say the rest of this and maybe I'm not. Maybe this thought's the last thing I'm going to say because <laughs> the rest is stupid. Is that because it was consistent with this guy, Arthur Frobisher? Yes, it was definitely consistent with a sociopath yes. billionaire who thought he was the big, you know, tough guy. Yeah. Tough guy. But also, true, I'd become a nice actor because sitcoms, comedy has a metronome going. It's a dance step. Mm-hmm. And so you, you do need to hit the marks. Yeah. You do need to stay yeah. and, you know, keep the melody going, right. which means... You don't get that indulgent, I'll go anywhere, do anything mm-hmm. that I organically feel and fuck you, <laughs> you know, which is interesting. Right. It's really interesting to watch. When was but, the last time you'd done that? And Curb had that too. So Curb, okay. Curb had that too, because right. you were making it up. You had free reign, kind of, you know, to say anything that came to your mind. And, right. my, and my job was, Ted Danson's job. Right. And Curb Your Enthusiasm is to push Larry David further and further into a corner. (laughs) So when he explodes, he's unbearably Larry. Right, right, right. So both those shows kind of freed me up to, it's not that I do it all the time, but I need to always remind myself. Yeah. And, And just to know further about the damages aspect, this was 23 episodes I think you did over a period of spanning 2007 through 2010 very acclaimed Shaw on FX. New York Times wrote about you, quote, he has always been a master of the smug smile and entitled gesture, close quote. But they said that you use that in a fascinating way where it's subverting it. Well, here, actually, I want to quote something you said, quote, by hiring me for Frobisher, you present the audience with all of my baggage, which is, hey, it's good old, nice, sweet Ted who will make a smile. Then Ted jumps into an Escalade with a hooker and tells somebody to kill somebody else. (laughs) I mean, part of this is we'd never really seen you as a bad guy. Like, Sam wasn't perfect, but he was not a bad guy. Is that fun to get to play? It is. And, you know, I mean, you you shouldn't come from Cheers and decide to play Adolf Hitler just to show your range. But (laughs) Well, how about the incestuous father? That was a... But, you know, it's what it is, is really good writing because they have you do things. I mean, literally, if right now in the middle of this interview, I threw the rest of my latte in your face (laughs) because you pissed me off. I would be forever different in your eyes because of what I did. So if you have characters doing things like jumping in the back of an Escalade, <laughs> you're forever different, right. you know, and you're all of a sudden a little scary because you don't know where good old Ted will go. Right. So I think good writing sometimes makes use of right. actors' baggage. And then another reason you might 
choose to do a project in the case of Bored to Death on HBO from 2009 to 2011, the reason for something like that was actually partly that you say you personally as Ted can kind of relate to this guy, George Christopher, in the sense that... Don't leave me behind. I want to be relevant still. Hey, young young kids, let let me be... Let me be hip and cool with you. Don't leave me behind. You know, it's it's it was the perfect kind of sixty-year-old moment. I still want to be a player, right. and that was George Christopher. Right, and that is the most fun when you get to play a character that you can actually explore and make use of you and what you're going through in life. Because I'm I'm wondering what the hell are you supposed to do as a seventy-year-old man. <laughs> I'm, I'm wrestling with that <laughs> right, right now. Right. I guess you play a demon is what you do. <laughs> well, almost there with that. But CSI, that whole chapter as this forensic expert, it was originally CSI Crime Scene Investigation 2011 to 2015, and then CSI Cyber 2015 to 2016. When the top-rated network show, which pays very nicely from what I understand, comes to you and says, we want you to step in for Lawrence Fishburne. It was interesting to me that you said, I will only do this if it's not going to piss off Bored to Death and HBO because of the fa- I mean, is that right? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, they had first position. I mean, everyone else had first position, and I didn't want to be responsible for ending any of them because mm-hmm. I loved yeah. everything I you know was doing. There was a period when I was doing Damages, Bored to Death, and Curb, and it was like three of the most delicious jobs yeah. You could ever hope for, mm-hmm. but they got worked out. Yeah, and then the one other really notable one prior to the Good Place was a year before the Good Place, 2015. Fargo, you and Patrick Wilson were the interesting tandem there. All of this is leading up though to the Good Place, and I guess let's let's just say this. Congratulations I, uh, again on last night. You guys were named the best comedy show of the year for the second season at the TCA, the Television Critics Association Awards. For anyone who hasn't yet started watching this and maybe needs to go and start catching up, can you just share who the gentleman is who you play on this, Michael? I guess the answer really depends on which season, but I mean, overall, who is he and what drew you to playing him? Well, let me start with Mike Shore. First off, you can go see The Good Place on Netflix. Yes. Thank goodness. God bless Netflix. Yes. So you can binge watch. There are 26 episodes out there before this one and the third season starts. Mm-hmm. And Mike Schur is our writer-creator who is just astounding and remarkable creator, writer, producer, and one of the most decent mm-hmm. people I've ever met. I just really am amazed by him. And people previously know him from... Parks and Rec, uh, yes, Parks Brooklyn and Rec. Nine he Nine. also Brooklyn Nine Nine, and he also ran the Office, the Office, yeah, the American version for quite a while. So, it, the, basically, it takes place in the afterlife. It's called the Good Place. There is a bad place, but this takes place in the in the Good Place, and I am the architect of this neighborhood uh, that houses two hundred and I can't remember. 29 or something like 200, I can't remember, there's an exact number that, you know, and the afterlife is made up of all these different neighborhoods, perfectly designed for the cream of the crop as they come to the good place. And I'm middle management, and uh, it's my first neighborhood. I've been an apprentice for over five 
you know, thousand years because <laughs> I'm an eternal being. Right. And in comes Kristen Bell mm -hmm. with the new group of freshmen. And turns out she's not supposed to be there. Right. She, it was a typo or a something, you know. And because this is a fine-tuned, magical place, all hell breaks loose because she's not supposed to be there. Right. Throws and that's the first season. And right. you think that I am just over my head and everything's falling apart. And then I discover it's her. And then we're going to have to send her to the bad place. There's all of these. And everyone is being just psychologically tortured, the four humans, because they're just all over their heads. Right. You know, and turns out that I'm actually batting for the other team. <laughs> you find out that I am a demon who went to my bosses and said, this will be way more fun than, you know, bees right. with teeth and, you know, lava. I can get them to torture themselves. Right. It'll be hell for them and it'll be funny. So let me try it. They think I shouldn't. And so I'm in jeopardy when Kristen Bell keeps finding out what's going on. Well, that's that's yeah. The let, setup. Me, let, let me. me that's the setup. That's a terrific one, and I I want to ask you just first of all, do you think your character's name is Michael because Michael Shore runs the show, or is are you some ways? No, the I standard? think it's more of an archangel like thing, probably. Okay, how different was your job for season one versus season two, and your the way you went about it because of the fact that you had this huge secret right. that you had to keep, and also to feed as right. your as your character. Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, there are times when I'd watch literally and go, well, this is either the worst <laughs> acting job I've ever done in my life right. or I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Because usually you learn about people in their private moments. Mm -hmm. They'll have a private moment. I had no private moments, or yeah. you would have seen me twirling my, <laughs> you know, shining up my horns or something. So I would just pop in in this kind of Willy Wonka hyper way right. and then pop out again. And usually humor comes from, it's a triangle between you, a character you're talking to, and the audience. And you play that back and forth. But there was no wink or nod to the audience at all. So it was very hard to find the funny the first year. Mm-hmm. Second year was carte blanche because everybody knew what was going on right. and it was like looking behind the curtain. What was that moment like where you sprung it on the audience that this actually was the bad place and the way you did it has it was so memorable. And in fact, I mean, first of all, this I think was again the New York Times. They said part of the reason The Good Place's twist had impact is because audiences didn't have this down as a plot twist kind of show. And so when we do see your smile kind of diabolically develop and the laugh and all of that. And we find, I mean, it was so impactful that I think it started a whole meme on social media that yeah. anything now when Trump is elected, this is the bad place right. or whatever. <laughs> but playing that moment, there's a lot riding on that moment. Did you? Well, think you know what? I, Mike Shore directed that. He directs all the last episodes. Mm -hmm. And we were just kind of finding our way, and we stumbled upon that, which just seemed to kind of amuse all of us. Instead of me getting mad at her for busting me, <laughs> it was like <laughs> out came this laugh, which just seemed kind of, kind of right. But you're right. Social media, luckily, social media went, wait, what? And then other people went, what are you talking about, right, you guys? Right. And then they were able to go to Netflix and catch up. And catch up. So it was kind of this perfect 
thank you social media yes. kind of thing. I mean, I guess it's interesting because for a show that ostensibly is about equivalent of heaven or hell or where do you go or all of that, it's actually people have remarked on how optimistic it is about mankind, that it's actually a very oh, optimistic show. Oh, I'm so happy to be part of it. It is a show about decency. It's a show about ethics, mm-hmm. that there are consequences to your actions. Mm-hmm. You do something and it, it goes out into the world and creates a certain amount of good or a certain amount of bad. There are ripple effects, there are consequences, and you're answerable. Yeah. And, that's just, and it's pure mathematics in our world. So you need a high enough point count to get into the good place. Otherwise, you're going to the bad place. Right. And it's based solely on right. your actions. Your tally, yeah. And to me, that's kind of quite wonderful. Yeah. It's wrapped in this kind of nine-year-old fart right. sense of humor. Right. So it's wonderfully silly right. and funny at the same time. Porking shirt and stuff. Yes, right. <laughs> and also visual magic. So you right. know you're not just talking about being in a different world. Right. You are, visually. How does this part stack up in your mind with these other great ones that we've talked about leading up to this that you've played over the years? I have trouble with that. Um, This is what I'm doing right now, and I just feel so blessed to be part of a show that I think has something to say and Mm -hmm. means something. I have 9-year-old, 12-year-olds coming up to me, families coming up to me, you know, and saying thank you, you know. And it's one of those shows where kids watch it over and over again because it moves so fast. Yeah. There's so much going on that they will go back and, you know, watch it two or three times. And and it's about, it's a perfect thing for right now. You know, we're all a little bit adrift on mm-hmm. what it means to be good. There must be something nice, though, about doing a 13-episode season as someone who had done 22 yeah, or 28. No, I couldn't do it. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's a real sprint, right. you know. And the the dialogue is so elevated. It's a very stylized, elevated kind of dialogue. So you really have to work. I have to work my butt off. Right. Kristen Bell looks at it and goes, got it. You know? <laughs> so as a final question here, I guess just having subjected you to having to look back at at all of the amazing twists and turns that have led us to this point. What's your overall sort of outlook at the moment? And what's the view towards the future? Is there anything that you have not yet gotten to do that you really are craving the chance to do? Is there something that you're particularly proud of now at this point having done? Like, what's, what's just the big picture at this point in life for Ted Danson. Well, let me just preface that with we wrapped Friday night. I'm tired. You know, I'm I'm ready for a break. I'm ready to hang out with Mary and go do nothing. So if my energy, you know, is more reflective of that than my excitement to act, that's my preface. I love going to work. I love driving through studio gates turning right on James Stewart Avenue, <laughs> hanging left on Gregory Peck Boulevard. It thrills me. Mm-hmm. Today at mm-hmm. 70, I get an excitement about going through the gate. I like that I know the guard. I love crews. You know, crews are just these amazing, talented, hardworking, way harder than what you do, mm-hmm. working people who you get to have fun with 
throughout a day. I love actors. I love writers. I so admire, you know, writing. And the whole process makes me so happy to go to work. I don't really care what I do next. I feel I'm a little bit more of a contract player. <laughs> Please tell me where to go. Right. Next, right. you know, I've never been the actor who has piles of scripts that I have to choose from. It just seems to kind of magically appear, whatever it is I'm supposed to do next. I suppose I would like to try to, f I'm a, we're going to do another season of Curb in mm -hmm. October, but I suppose it it's, feels good to do, because this is, this is a very, the good place yeah. is, uh, definitely has a metronome going, yeah. you know, you have a real rhythm, so it's intense. Mm -hmm. I suppose it'd be fun to do a little more of the indulgent, fuck you kind of acting, <laughs> you know, which is always kind of fun. Feels like meat and potatoes, right. you know, here and there. But I really have, it's not that I don't want to keep acting, I do. And it's not that I'm not ambitious, I am. Mm -hmm. But I'm very content and very blessed. So, you know, keep showing up and trying to be better at what I do and who I am. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a privilege to get to go through all this with you. I really appreciate yeah, your thank time. thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.